Good morning, comrades, and welcome to uh, another week of uh, Workers' Power here on 4ZZZ. Um, I'm Bill, and uh, uh, but uh, today on the show we've got a bit of workers' action. Also, we've got a special guest uh, who we'll, we'll meet very soon. Andy, Andy, welcome. Welcome morning, on mate. It's good, good to have you here. And, of course, we'll finish off with the uh, uh, world-famous Scally Wag of the Week. All right, uh, so first off, as always, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast, the Yuggera and Turrbal people. This land was stolen, never ceded. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge all First Nation comrades listening today. We stand in solidarity with First Nations people in their struggles uh, for recognition, reparation and land rights. We live and benefit on stolen land. It's time to pay the rent. And uh, one of the ways that um, we pay the rent is by um, starting off and uh, sharing uh, some uh, First Nations workers' action. And uh, we've got a bit of a victory here to uh, to, to share, comrades. So... Uh, Cape York traditional owners uh, celebrate a special native title determination. So almost 2,200 square kilometres of land has been handed back to Kaiku, Yu and Utalanganayu people under the first successful native title determination in the Cape York United uh, n- number one claim. The claim is one of the largest in Australia first filed on behalf of a Cape York traditional owners in 2014. The determination covers an area of land on the eastern side of the Cape in Lockhart coastal region. For elders like Father Brian Cloudy, Thursday's successful determination has been many years in the making. I've been waiting for so long, maybe 30 or 40 years, he said. I was 19 years old when I stood up first helping the old people. I think I am the only one who sings and speaks the language now. I'm still doing that. I'm a language man. This claim is special for this generation. Utalanganu, traditional owner Beatrice Hobson, also expressed her delight at finally getting the land back my people, they was worrying for a long time to get their land back. So we got it. Hey, we got it, she said. I was worrying about my people being able to go back and sit down here, out in the outstation, out in their own country, and look after it, because this is our mother's land. We want to keep our land safe. Father Brian, who is now 71, is a senior Kanthan Ampu Elder of the Gaku Ya Native Title Group. He said the determination area includes sacred sites and will be a place that young people can learn about culture. It's going to be really important, he said. It's very important for the future children, generation to generation to generation. Dancing broke out after the determination was heard with traditional owners joyous at this first win in a long-fought battle. Cape York Land Councillor Chair Richie Almat said it was a proud day. Their battle began in 1997 and 1998 when Kakuyu Yao and Utalanganu, traditional owners, fought for recognition of their traditional rights in early native title and land claims, he said. I am awed by the efforts and resilience of today's successful claimants and pay tribute to the struggles of their elders. The rewards are finally theirs. Oh, that's some great news, comrades. Uh, you know, they get control um, over the site. And uh, um, I especially like the line where they were talking about they can look after the, the sacred sites. That's just, that's some good stuff there. So, uh, yes, some good news that we get to share in, in an area that normally it's uh, not so good news. So, uh um, we're really, ha- really happy with that to, to share it with you um, on today's show. So, and uh, 
Yeah, the um, traditional owners up at Cape York uh, have been fighting a long, hard battle and they've won. So it's the old adage, if you uh, don't fight, you lose. And uh, they've fought and they've won. And uh, like I said, I've got uh, Andy in the studio with me. So uh, first off, welcome, Andy. Thank you, mate. Um, it's good to have you on here, and uh, so uh, can you can you tell us, uh, you know, uh, you know, what what you're allowed to to reveal by keeping your privacy kind of thing, and uh, well, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, about myself, okay. Uh, I'm currently uh, in a role with the CFMU as an organizer, um, along with several other people in the organisation. So. If you're not familiar with the CFMEU, we're the main uh, union representing building construction workers nationally, um, and that is in building construction and civil projects. Um, we're a pretty broad church in a sense that we do do that, but also look after workers in manufacturing sector, the off-site sector as far as people who make cabinetry or um, work in factories as well. So we're, we're a pretty broad church when it comes to the people we represent. Um, and myself, uh, my main role as an organiser is in the civil and infrastructure uh, part of the industry. All right, on. And, uh, yeah, so uh, and how long have you been, um, you know, getting around? The, you've been, been around for a while now? What was your trade to begin with? Uh, I'm a plumber by trade, um, and I started out uh, through the same path that most organisers uh, go through, whether that be a delegate or shop steward, um, and things just naturally progress. So I've been in the building construction industry my whole life, um, and things have just evolved in there through struggles that we've had on building sites or with particular employers, and I guess um, you just you realise what, what your rights are as you go through the process and realise what's being taken from you or not being awarded to you and you can be vocal about it and as things progress you can end up in positions like this. So I've, I've been organising now for roughly four years. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I, I'm from the shop floor too. Well, that's what we call it in the retail but game. But, uh, yeah, it's the, the old shop floor and uh, work your way up the ranks as, you know, as a delegate and... Uh, how recruit your co-workers and uh, campaign with your co-workers and then all of a sudden, hey, I'm a union organiser. Kind of, yeah. It's an interesting ride, isn't it, Andy? Yeah, I think through struggles with workers, it really galvanises them. So, um, and it makes unionists stronger out of those situations. So it's probably the best thing that you can go through um, as a worker is to have a blue with the boss and then become stronger out of it and it does create um, more awareness in the industry and, and leaders in the industry and, and people that are more vocal and it can share those ideas and strengthen workers in general. Yeah, yeah, right on. Right on, so, um, so you're with the CFMEU and, uh, you know, a good fighting union and uh, so what uh, what what are some of the struggles that are exciting you that uh, that either you or, or one of the, the the crews are working on at the moment uh, being the CFMU and being the broad church that that we are um, there's always there's always a blue uh, there's always something that's arising um, a, a lot of us are just on the back of a pretty um, extensive EBA campaign um, that's slowly getting wrapped up now where I think we're at about 300 or so um, companies now under the CFMEU banner and their workers which is a pretty successful round uh, for us and it's still continuing and as the, the city of uh, Brisbane gets busier uh, more and more come to the fold and workers um, are standing up more and being more vocal so we expect that to get uh, much larger. Um, for me personally in the city um, if, uh, like yourself and many other people, would be aware of the Cross River Rail project um, that started a couple of years ago now um, and just the absolute debacle that is um, and that's happened under the watch of a Labor government um, and now we're left to try and pick up the pieces and try and secure uh, wages and conditions for workers on that job when it could have been the crown jewel in the city. But um, unfortunately... Um, at, the, at the way that it's turning out at this stage, it's more of a, a kick in the face to the working class and the construction workers of this city. Yeah, um, yeah. We, as you mentioned, the ALP is behind it, and they're 
they 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 tend to use it more as a photo opportunity than than rather you know the um, you know looking after workers and the community by you know having a you know good jobs and good infrastructure. Well, that's right. Um, this could really be a huge a huge project for the city and and for the residents as well. Um, and we believe these issues are community issues as well because the people that our members and the other workers that are on the project that are building it are also going to be the people who use it and their families use it and it's impacted in their neighbourhoods around the city. Um, but the project itself is just it's just surrounded in a farce. Like like you say, it's there's photo opportunities galore, but there's you know it's all screened behind workers at the expense of workers. Um, for instance, I think the initially. Uh, the intent was to bring up labour from interstate um, and shortchange the construction workers of the city. Um, there's workers on that project now where they're working under union conditions, but they're workers that have stood up and fought for those conditions with the companies that they work for. So there are some uh, workers out there that are working under the conditions, but the rest of them, um, it's just a ward or or worse you know and it's and it's all at the hands of of the labor government so um what we're trying to do now is and what we tried to do initially was get good wages and conditions for the whole project um which is fair for everyone and that includes training and apprentices and all that sort of thing where it's just not happening on the project and what you see is numbers thrown out and i'll use trainees and apprentices as an example of 200 plus trainees and apprentices gone through there but the reality is there's only around a handful of them that are on the project full time so what Cross River Rail and the delivery authority has become really good at is moving numbers around and articles around to make them look good and do shiny shovel appearances for the state but it's the reality is the communities the ones that are losing out and um yeah, it's 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 gonna. There's an opportunity to change, but as it sits right now, um, the only people that are losing out is is the workers of the city. Yeah, that's right. And look, coming to four triple Z, I've got to go past there, and uh, and some days on a dry day, you can you can notice the dust, you know, coming out of there. So there's there's um, some safety issues happening in and around the site as well. Yeah. The. I'm not sure if it is, but if not, it must be very close to uh, the project with the most amount of uh, notices and infringements and that sort of thing tied to it more than anything. I think it's 300 plus now, um, more than any other project that this state's seen as in regards to safety breaches. Um, and you're right, the dust was a, a major part of that, uh, particularly over the Gabba side of the stations, um, where not only was the community getting flooded with silica dust, but the workers on the job site were as well. And it was only because of uh, our, our members and their safety representatives saying enough's enough that anything happened there. Um, they were getting swamped by it. The workers had to remove themselves um, so they weren't continually covered in harmful silica dust, as we know. Um, it's having huge impact at the moment. Um, otherwise, it would have just kept ticking and they cpb being the the main contractor there um will say now that it wasn't harmful or they always intended to fix it but the reality is it wasn't fixed until the workers removed themselves um and and that's that that sort of sets the standard for the project it's always uh cart before the horse scenarios where until workers and our members stand up and say something about it um things aren't fixed and We've continually been battling for that on the project, and that that happens up until this day. Yeah, right on. Yeah, um, like you said, it sh- it should be the uh, shining light in the in in the workforce in the in the, you know, it should should be the jewel, the shining jewel of uh, the construction area. But it's uh, it's not. So, um, th- thanks for you know coming in and uh, and chatting about that. Um, but uh, oh look, you're hanging around. It- So I'm joined by Andy from the the, the CFMEU, and we before the the break we were chatting a little bit at, uh, about uh, uh, Cross River Rail, but uh, a good uh, chunk of uh, an organiser's work is um, is working on EBAs, and uh, I bet you you've got a few going on at the moment, Andy. 
Yeah, we've had quite a few. Um, all our agreements came up in 2019, so they're all due for renewal then. So we've been going through the campaign now for the past 12 months for a two-year deal um, across all our industries. Um, it, was, it was supposed to be a quick kill, to be honest with you. Um, we had everything put in place and then COVID happened. So we had to go back to the drawing board and, and see where that sat. So we came out with a new lot of agreements um, to go through 2020, 2022. Um, and the reality is in 12 months, we'll be back in the negotiating table again. But um, we've been pretty busy, all the organisers, including myself, trying to get agreements squared over the line. And um, so far, so good. Uh, I think I mentioned before, there's about 300 or so that we've got in the bag. So, and we expect that to grow. Right, so yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a fair, fair bit of work there, and uh, you know, like uh, getting the mo- the members motivated. Now you get the members involved, and they they uh, work out the log of claims, and uh, how, how do you go? How do you go about it uh, when 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 the uh, when the uh, EBA is due to expire? Uh, the beautiful thing about the CFMU is our members aren't afraid and coming forward um, with <laughs> how they feel about things, uh, which is perfect, and that's that's what you want. So uh, by the time that our agreements come up, there's always stuff off the floor telling us um, what's good or bad or where they think things are going. So we take all that on board, and, um, and it's also a big part of the building construction industry is Brisbane seems to be an on or off city when it comes to building construction. There's no medium. Um, so that can have an impact on uh, the logger claims, I suppose, as well. Um, we're now, uh, we're coming into a really busy period for uh, Brisbane in general. There's there's a lot of work coming online. There's a lot of infrastructure work coming online, um, which puts us in a really good position in the next 12 months to be able to negotiate really well. Uh, members of, Members can feel it. Uh, members are more confident. Uh, they're talking about it already, uh, which is a really good sign. So I think squaring away what we do now, um, providing that more work comes on board, is, is going to be uh, a really big and a really exciting campaign for us next round. So... Um uh, with in, in my my area of organising, you know, in retail and fast food, and, and, and to use the Coles example, they they don't even want to come to the bargaining table. Um, how do you, how do you uh, fare on that front? Uh, are most bosses willing to negotiate? Of course, you have probably got got your scallywags that you got to deal with, but uh, the majority of bosses want to actually bargain. Uh, it's a mixed bag. Um, like when, when the city is busy or when the state is busy, uh, you find that companies will come to you, um, but then you always have the ones where you've got agreements and bosses have new ideas about going in different directions without speaking to their workers and all that sort of thing. So there's always there's always a blue somewhere. Um, some are easier than others, but I think the key thing is if you have the hearts and the minds of the workers and they believe in what you do and, and, and they're ready to follow the union and, and um, band together, you can you can always get an agreement over the line. And whether, whether you've got one or you're renewing one, I think that's the key. If they got faith in you and they, they trust you and, and you have their hearts and minds and their best intentions um, in mind, um, you can get anything over the line. Right on, yeah. That's 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 what we want, and uh, yeah, yeah. The the workers are empowered, but uh, um, w- when you're dealing with uh, some of the numbers that 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 um, you know, I've got to deal with uh, um, the majority support determinations are very very difficult to to, to get over the line. But uh, um, it's fantastic that uh, you, you know you guys solidly organise in in your areas. Um, is there been any um, re- recent uh, EBAs that that you're particularly proud of or I- I any of light uh, I look after the the piling industry um, which is foundations um, so it's a relatively closed <laughs> shop in one sense that um, majority of contractors and workers in that industry are under our, our union agreement um, and we've had we've had some pretty close calls and some uh, banding together of workers for those companies um, some of them are multinational, so whenever you're going up against a multinational, um, things get a lot trickier because bosses tend to pass the buck um, and, you know, have every other excuse under the sun to try and get things to work and play that, oh, I'm just a good bloke, I wish I could do more, but 
my hands are tied. So um, I think the thing that I'm proud of with this round as far as they're concerned was um, that the workers um, in the industry haven't really hesitated. They knew what they wanted and uh, got together rather quickly and had trust in us that we would we would make it happen and it was just really good to be able to see that um, I think for all parts of the industry um, as well that everyone just jumped on it together said we want to make this happen we know it's COVID um, but we've still got to move through it and it was just really good to see to be a part of it um, I think that's what one thing that um, is, is really proud to be a part of this union is that the all the members um, when push comes to shove, will galvanise pretty quickly to get things happening and to see that unravel in, in front of you, especially with everything that's um, happened over the past couple of years, has been really cool to see. So I think there's no one agreement that I'm um, more proud of than others. I think the whole round of, of, of the industry has been really good and, and something to be proud of. Fantastic answer, comrade. Well done. I, I really like that. They, yeah, they're all as important as each other, aren't they? You know, they're all they're all you know workers. You know, so all right. Well, we'll um we'll move on. But uh, before we do, right, uh, um, want to ask you a couple of things. You know, so those that are on the building site right now, listening into Four Triple Z, like they should be. Um, uh, and they're not they're not a um, CFMEU member. Um, why and how should they join? That's a, the, I'll, I'll put you on the spot a bit there, but yeah, well, g- give us a spill. Uh, why should you join the CFMEU if in the building construction industry? Uh, because we got your back, uh, irrespective of what you think uh, your boss may or may not do. Um, especially in times where uh, there's downturns in the industry or it comes to um, safety on job sites or it comes to entitlements being paid, um, our track record proves that um, having membership with us and us looking after you, we we recover those entitlements or we keep your job site safe. Um, And members that are banded together and and are part of their union um, is proved to be um, wages entitlements alone um, higher than workers that aren't um, that are individualised. So um, it does does pay to be a part of your union. Um, and the easiest way to join the union, um, well, you got several ways, I suppose. You, online, speak with an organiser, a delegate, or our office at Bowen Hills. Right on, right on. Uh, yeah, I always like the line. Um, you know, find find your you, you, find your delegate in your workplace, or join your go online, join your union, find your delegate. You know, in your workplace, and if you can't find it, find one. You'll find one in the mirror. Yeah, that's exactly right. I had that similar conversation with someone on Friday. Actually, um, a company they don't have a delegate at the moment. A bloke was calling me bringing up some issues and saying you need a delegate and I said the same thing to him I said mate sounds like you're putting your hand up so um, it's very true Um, and it can be a daunting thing at first but I find that um, you know if you're surrounded by uh, your peers and and members and you have the support from officials and organisers and other delegates you know you you can you can build up to it and it's something that's definitely worthwhile. Well that's I'm I'm sure you're very very similar to myself and you know, um, inca- or finding, finding, and then encouraging delegates is is the bread and butter of an organizer's work. You know, we can't. You know, without those delegates, you, 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 yeah, they're just so important in the whole process, aren't they? Yeah, a, a good delegate structure is key. Um, having that uh, gives you the ability to spread your wings further and and go into other sectors that maybe aren't unionised. Um, the delegate is your eyes and ears. So having the ability to back your delegate um, and encouraging them. And I guess the key thing, as long as they, they've got the members in mind when they make any decision and it's in the benefit for them, then you can't really go wrong. And it's just backing them and, and supporting them so that they can grow as well and, and moving those values um, through the industry because you, you, you don't want to hold them dear and then have a have the organisers that you have and the delegates you have and then have no one grow from that. It's The, the union is about growing and educating people along the way. So you can do that through um, a good delegate structure and supporting those delegates and educating them and, in turn, they educate the workforce as well. Yeah, spot on. Yeah, yeah, yeah vital to the uh, union movement, the old workplace delegate. 
All right, and now this this one, you, look, you might need to take it on notice, but uh, uh, can you can you let us know what you know about the um, CFMEU youth crew? Uh, yep, there's it's run um, by another organizer, primarily uh, in Blake Hines, and it was started a few years ago now for members up to the age of 35 uh, to encourage them to be more active within their in their union and uh, that was brought in so that some issues are more affected to younger people in the industry than they are to older older people in the industry so that was brought in there to bring those to light and uh, address those issues and and get them more involved as well so something's been growing really steadily over the past few years um, and something that continues um, to go to this day. So it's, it's a really active part of uh, the union and it's, uh, yeah, it's got a, a really big place for growth. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. We, it, it's good to encourage, you know, different caucuses, and, and that's what we call them in our union, you know, kind of caucus. Do you do you, just just a, this is an easy probably yes or no because I'm pretty sure I know. Now, do you do the women within the 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 CFMEU organise as well? They do, yeah. So um, there's CFMEU women as well, uh, which was a, a really recent initiative. Um, again, and that's one thing that keeps growing as well. Um, We've had a big push uh, to get more women into the industry um, because it is really male-dominated, um, and that has been a big help as a part of that as well. Like like the youth crew has been with um, getting more uh, young unionists more active and, and aware of um, everything that's going on within the industry and, and raising their issues as well. Awesome, awesome. Always like to hear about these, uh, you know, good fundamental um, organising and uh, within a union and uh, amplifying voices that that need amplifying and things like that. So, fantastic stuff. Now, um, thanks for chatting with us about CFMEU. Now, Cindy, I, I'm here on my own. You, you're you're keen to to hang around and uh, get us a bit of commentary in the second hour where you can. I'll try my best, mate. No worries. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for that, and thanks for sticking around. Well, uh, okay. Now we're going to uh, move on to some uh, um, workers' action here on Workers' Power on Four Triple Z. Um, and uh, we've got we've got a story here from um, uh, now RMIT. I'm not sure what it stands for, but it's a university down in Victoria. So um, thousands of RMIT employees to be back paid. Oh, there's that word. My one of my favourite word in the English language. Back pay. Love it. Uh, th- they're getting back paid at ten million dollars uh, following. Uh, NTEU wage theft dispute. Thousands of RMIT employees will be back paid approximately $10 million after the NTEU accepted the university university's proposal to settle its casual payment dispute. In June this year, the NTEU lodged a dispute with RMIT over wage theft dating back as far as 2014. The union alleged this form of wage theft occurred due to university paying academic casuals the standard rate of pay per hour for marking instead of the required academic judgment rate, a difference of between $10 and $20 per hour. After the NTEU referred the matter to the Fair Work Commission last month, RMIT proposed to settle the dispute without admission of liability by increasing each standard rate of payment to casual academic staff for assessment work since 3rd of July 2014 to the academic judgment rate. This will affect approximately 3,900 past and current employees and cost RMIT an estimate $10 million accounting for super and interest. The NTEU ultimately accepted RMIT's proposal and will discontinue the dispute. 
The terms of a deed of release signed by the parties required RMIT to provide monthly updates to the NTEU on its attempt to contact and back pay past staff and to meet with the NTEU-nominated oversight committee who also have the discretion to bring their underpayment matters to the university's attention. RMIT is also required to back pay current casual staff before the end of the year and to contact past casuals who are entitled to payment under the settlement agreement within months. NTEU Victorian Division Assistant Secretary Sarah Roberts said, while it's pleasing, workers will finally get paid what they are owed. RMIT deserves no praise for simply agreeing to remunerate its workers. Make no mistake, if it weren't for the NTEU members who fought RMIT tooth and nail for this outcome, it is unlikely casual staff would have seen one cent in back pay from the university. The outcome is a result of months and months of hard work with brave members coming forward to share their stories of how this has affected them in addition to preparing written statements and provide extensive pay and assessment records at the university's request. Wage theft has deep human consequences, depriving modestly paid casual workers of the income to pay bills, plan for their future or take leave. So, and then there was a a media release on the 25th of November... In some instances, workers have been waiting seven years for the money they are owed. It is encouraging that RMIT has agreed to further training and communication to ensure a consistent awareness and understanding of RMIT policy relating to the payment of academic judgment rates. However... The critical fact RMIT and all universities across Australia must grapple with is that wage theft is the result of insecure work inflicted on university workers through short-term contracts and casual employment. The fact that RMIT have refused to pay members of the oversight committee who are casual employees is is emblemic of the chronic underappreciation and exploitation of this of these workers wage theft has become ingrained in universities business models and must end now rmit is not the first institution to admit to wage theft and unless every university is compelled to undergo a thorough order or audit of its practices it won't be the last there you go wage theft is everywhere yeah, massive win for them, um, considering that part of the industry isn't uh, overly militant. Like a lot of courage for those members to come forward, but a, but a huge win for them. So that's right. It's, it's very very difficult and um, for casual workers to to stand up because their their shifts can can all of a sudden start to dry up a little bit. Yeah, it's weird how that goes hand in hand, but. Again, it just proves no matter what part that you're working in, what part of the world that you're working or the industry you're working in, it pays to be a part of a union. It pays off dividends for those guys. That's right. Your $10 million they were trying to rip off workers, you know. So that's huge, huge, huge numbers. Righto. Um, um, before we go to a, a break, I've got, a, I've got another short story of a win. So um, congratulations... Now we always like our wins here on Workers Power. That you know, we, 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 in certain ways, we wish we were just reporting on wins all, every week. But um, unfortunately, it's not the case. So, it, uh, congratulations to a Geelong Library and Heritage Centre workers and the Australian Services Union members. That's my. I'm a member of that union too which you would be eligible to be a a, a member of that union as well. Um, ASU members who just voted up a new offer from the library, bringing their protracted protracted dispute to an end, the crucial element being their willingness to carry out multiple days of strike action. 
Uh, one favorite, one great part was when library bosses docked an employee 12 seconds pay for handing out a leaflet to a member of the public. How ridiculous. 12 seconds pay. We're going to dock you for that. Yeah, what a grub. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. The first industrial, industrial action at any of these libraries in decades and a wonderful outcome for these workers who do so much for their communities. Librarians are not just librarians. They are also social workers, advocates and educators. Uh, congrats and a reminder that strike action is a weapon that workers in any industry can deploy. It sure is, you know, with the old withdrawal of labour. I think here's a good opportunity for for us to chat about how, like, and, and you know this, and, uh, you know, no, most people within the union movement know this, that when, when we go out on strike, that's that's the, we're at the end of our tether at that stage, aren't we? Yeah, that's right. It's That's as far as you can go. If everything else has failed in the interim, um, yeah, going out on the grass is the last straw, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you've got some members who want to go straight out on the grass, but generally we've got to. No, no, let's. Uh, you know, some other with other, with some bosses, other tactics work, don't they? And they they buckle at the first sign of any slight industrial action. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. It, it depends. Like some bosses will believe that all the workers are in their pocket, so the slightest chance to prove that wrong is enough to jolt them. Um, others are more maybe experienced in uh, in that industrial space and it will take it to uh, withdrawing labour for them to actually get the picture and realise that this is what the workers want, this is what they deserve and this is what they're willing to do. So, yeah, it just depends on the depends on the management, I suppose, and their style of management um, will determine how you how you tackle it. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, our, and the interesting thing thing about this is, um, like, with when we were been organising the Coles workers, it's so good to listen to to the workers on on uh, different types of industrial activity because they work in the industry. Like, although I used I worked in the industry for seven years, I've been out of it for a, for a few now. I don't know what 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 exactly is going on, and they know the right type of industrial actions to take in the lead up to strikes. You know, like. Um, uh, you know, I think one of the funniest ones that we heard from Coles is to not touch any red products. Yeah, okay. All right. So, have you have you do, do what what type of uh, um, industrial? Well, you've got to be careful talking about these kinds of tactics. But uh, um, have you got any others that come to mind uh, other than striking? Yeah, there's there's been a few that have worked over over the years. Um, one example would be refueling bans say on plant and equipment um which can be you know a, a, have a major effect without actually um <laughs> leaving the job um you know things of that which have that impact but they're but you're, you're still on site um i think the thing is when speaking with workers if they're looking to go for industrial action you can get a feel um about how 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 much they're galvanised or how ready to go they are and what they're willing to do and I think as an organiser it, it's your job to lay it out and be honest with them about where we're looking and, and encourage them to you know maybe a little bit more out of their comfort zone but also to be able to um, reassure them that if you stick together and we take this pace or whatever it is whether how big or small that action can be we you can get things over the line and you can have a win um, but there's tactics, yeah, as as long as the day is long, you know, that you yeah. can use. Um, but, yeah, it's not, not all about um, being on the grass, but definitely um, that's something we're pretty experienced in as well. Well, I think you, you, the, the, you raised the, the most important part of any industrial action, and that's sticking together. It's a collective action, you know. Like a, a good example is an overtime ban, you know, and if you've got one that's that's you know goes chasing money if you've got one or two workers who who keep doing the overtime well the action's not going to work so you've got to really you know sticking together no matter what type of action it is is the most important part yeah and said it a few times um but if when workers are together and they're tight they will achieve whatever the goal is they want to achieve um it's just i think some people believe that it can happen quickly 
but the reality is it sometimes it can but um, you just got to be prepared to go in there for the long haul and if you really want to get those outcomes stick together and ride it out and and you will achieve them that's it um, the workers united will never be defeated couldn't be clearer yeah now um the uh, new south wales teachers have been up to uh um, you know, standing up and fighting back. So uh, let's. Uh, I've got a, a media release uh, first up here. Um, so uh, growing teacher shortages, and uh, New South Wales could miss out on thousands of teachers. A confidential government document warns New South Wales has a large and growing shortage of teachers and says the state could miss out on more than 3,000 teachers unless a drop of almost 30% in the number of people studying to become a teacher is reversed. The information is contained in a briefing document prepared for the Secretary of the Department of Education in July ahead of a meeting with a panel conducting a national review of international of in, initial teacher education. The speaking points for the meeting state as with many other jurisdictions, New South Wales is facing a large and growing shortage of teachers in specialisations like STEM and inclusive education in rural and regional areas and sec- secondary. The briefing also warns enrolments in initial teacher education courses have fallen by almost 30%, contributing to teacher shortages and adds failing to respond to projected reductions in ITE enrolments in New South Wales is likely to mean a loss of over 3,000 potential teachers by 2030. In releasing the document today, the New South Wales Teachers Federation President, Angelo Givaralatos, said it proved once again the scale of the staffing crisis in schools. This document shows there is a large and growing shortage of teachers and a huge drop in enrolments in their teacher education courses that are making the problem worse and could cost us more than 3,000 teachers, he said. The only way to stop the shortage and recruit the teachers we need is to invest in teachers through more competitive salaries and lower workloads. The Department of Education warned in August last year, on average, teacher pay has been falling relatively to pay in other professions since the late 1980s, and this makes it a less attractive profession for high-achieving students. The demands and expectations on teachers are increasing, while the current rewards pathways and learning opportunities are not providing enough incentive. Mr Gavaralatis said the government's wages position had not changed since 2011, despite all the evidence that shortages were hurting students and uncompetitive teaching salaries were turning people off joining the profession. The 2.5% wages cap is the problem, not the solution, he said. Maintaining a wages cap in the face of a dramatic decrease in the attractiveness of the profession, rising shortages, and at a time when you need to recruit thousands more teachers is a recipe for disaster. Uh, Mr Peratatat, uh, which is the New South Wales Premier, is putting at risk the education of a generation of kids. The Department of Education warned last year New South Wales could run out of teachers in five years if action is not taken. There are more than 3,000 vacant permanent positions in New South Wales government schools now. Research shows New South Wales needs a minimum of 11,000 extra teachers in the next decade. The New South Wales Teaching Federation Council on Saturday voted unanimously to strike for 24 hours on Tuesday, December 7th over the Paratite government refusals to lift salaries and reduce workloads for teachers. A major study of New South Wales teachers found they are working 55 hours a week 
on average, and the government's own just-released survey shows only one-third of public school teachers have time to do their job well. In line with the recommendation of the Gallup inquiry, teachers and principals are seeking a salary increase of between 5 to 7.5% a year to recognise the increase in their skills and expertise and begin to reverse the decline in teachers' wages compared to other professions. An increase in preparation time of two hours a week is also sought to allow teachers more time for lesson planning and collaboration with their colleagues. The Gallup inquiry found the current level of teachers current levels of participate of the current levels of preparation time had not changed since the 1950s for secondary teachers and the 1980s for primary teachers. So yeah, they're just um um, they're they're they they're just wanting to um you know like five five to seven point five percent um is not all that much um uh, 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 what what type of uh, figures are you hearing in uh, in um, the construction industry is is uh, it varies doesn't it you know with all the different conditions yeah yeah uh, generally we do five percent increases um on a four year deal uh, we didn't do that this time round because the whole uh, COVID and it was a short deal uh, but generally speaking 5% isn't unusual um, the, this whole thing with the teachers is ridiculous when you know LNP governments can find money to give to private schools yet they struggle to be able to facilitate any in the state education It's, I guess it's the byproduct of having such a long LNP government in there to try and privatise everything including education um, teachers deserve that and more as far as I'm concerned oh yeah Definitely, definitely. You know, so they're they're asking for a, for a modest pay rise, and and the other thing that they're, that they're asking for is is more prep time, so that you know they they they're better prepared to uh, pre- to um, educate the youth. Yeah, I mean, every everyone goes to school, and everyone should have the opportunity to go to school, and parents take their kids to school every day, and especially during COVID, you could you could see that that was a you know, a vital part of everybody's routine, including the parents, and everybody was praising them for being frontline workers and the great work that they did during COVID and looking after the kids in school and keeping things moving and online. And yet now when it comes to the real deal, we can't give them a slight pay rise to be able to give them a, a good standard of living. Like, you know, that's that's the LNP, I guess. Yeah, well, this is an LNP government down in New South Wales, yeah, and uh, um, I, I, I don't know... Whether this was exactly the same for New South Wales teachers, but I do know Queensland teachers, they had to prepare both. Everyone was going, "Oh, you got it easy. The kids are at home." No, the kid, the the teachers actually had to end up preparing, um, do lesson preps for in-person teaching, hmm. and then also do the lesson preparation for the at-home schooling. So sending all you know, it's a diff- they're different lesson plans. They're different things and different, different um, uh, you know, way ways of t- uh, of teaching the kids more more hand offage. But that's still all work that, that that you've got to send through the 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 material that the students have got to look at, and then and then working out how to assess them and 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 all things like this, you know. So they had to do it twice for the for you know. So um, during during the um, y- you know the lockdown and the and the pandemic, pandemic they they've been considered essential and uh, like you said it's time that we reward them well like they should be and uh, i've got an old saying that i use it's a um, it's a blight on society when we pay more for people to look after our money than we do to look after our children it's, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, you know, childcare, it's chronic, you know, and, and you know, and education is so important for our future. Right, well, there's, there's been, a, a, there's some um, further news to that. So the New South Wales Teacher Federation will defy an order from the Industrial Relations Commission to scrap uh, the strike. The Department of Education on Monday succeeded in asking the Commission to order the Federation to cancel the strike. 
After the Federation's State Council voted at the weekend to strike and hold a rally outside Parliament on December 7th for pay rises and more planning time. However, a Federation President Angelo Givaralatos said the strike would proceed. The teacher shortages are too large and their cause uncompetitive salaries and unmanageable workloads too great for teachers and principals not to proceed with this action, he said. Negotiations over a new enterprise agreement are at a stalemate. The Federation is calling for a pay rise of 5% a year with an extra 2.5% to recognise extra experience as well as two more hours of planning time a week. However, the Department of Education is curtailed by the government's public sector wage cap introduced amid strikes in 2011, which limits increase... I think them, which um, limits increase to 2.5% a year. The policy only allows the cap to be exceeded if productivity gains are negotiated. The Department of Education Secretary, Georgia Harrison, said it welcomed the decision by the IRC. Of course she would. I'm not going to give... What a grub, you know, like... And encouraged the Federation to follow it. Well... Um, that's en- that's enough for, for, from uh, the the boss, you know. We we always uh, talk about we're we're workers' power, not bosses' power, yeah. you know. So bugger the boss. And uh, but uh, yeah, beginner teachers in New South Wales earn seventy dollars a year compared with. Seventy-five thousand four hundred and seventy-one for those in Queensland. Teachers in the highest-paying bands will earn one hundred and seven thousand and seven hundred and seventy-nine dollars in New South Wales, compared with a hundred thousand to a hundred and ten thousand dollars in Queensland. You go from different states to state. Well, for once, the Queensland are actually doing well there. Or, you know, like so, but um. Are you encountering the, the, the? Do you do you uh, come across bosses who who are hell bent on stuck on this two point five percent? I've never met a boss that's made money. Um, so the percentage that they come up with is always too high. So it's not so much um, two point five. It could be anything. It could be one or point five percent. They'll they've always have an excuse for the reason not to pay it. So yeah, I don't think that matters what what industry you're in. Um, there's always some excuse they can find. Yeah, and as we know, like I, I, I think that uh, the inflation is higher than two point five percent at the moment. So you're going backwards at that that, that those numbers. Um, but it seems to be the norm where we're, that um, we're reporting on across a lot of industries where um, all the bosses are after two point five percent, and uh, you know some some unions are, are, are saying, well, three percent will get us through. You know. Um, which is, is within itself is a bit low, you know. But uh, that's all the um, uh, the workers over at uh, Amata Hospital. That's all they were asking for three percent, and I'm pretty sure. And uh, the bosses just didn't want to give it. They just wouldn't buckle for that point five of a percent. Uh, local government and hospitals as well are the worst for pay increases. You know, they'll they'll argue over a percentage increase just because they're they're horrible institutions to deal with um and our members will will agree um but yeah they point of point five of a percent or something like that will be an argument enough for them just and i think sometimes that can just be a stalling tactic to try and drag it out because some of those negotiations go for years yes yeah yeah they do some of them go on long 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 time Okay, I've got two uh, two stories to get through. One of them's the scallywag of the week, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll whip through this first one. But uh, it's still an important uh, story where uh, uh, striking a countdown distribution centre workers uh, secure pay rise. Union says a pay rise has been secured for Countdown's Auckland distribution centre. Now, so for for those that don't know. Countdown is the uh, Woolworths brand in uh, New Zealand. So, um, yeah, Countdown is is, is owned by by uh, Woolworths here in Australia, and uh, yeah, it's the same symbol and stuff like that. So, they're uh, distribution centre workers. Uh, 
who ha- who had been on strike um, since uh, midnight on, on Tuesday, the union representing them says. About 700 countdown workers went on strike after the supermarket chain declined to offer pay rise, pay increases in line with the consumer price index during bargaining for a new collective agreement. The strike, which had been expected to continue into Saturday, resulted in stock shortages at countdowns around the country. However, late on Friday night, First Union spokesman Jared Abbott said distribution centre workers from the company's two distribution sites in Auckland had signed a new agreement that would include a 5% pay work. 5% wage rise for the next year and a 3.9% increase for a nine-month term in the following year. We're really proud of our delegates and members at Countdown who made it clear that they wanted real negotiations, an agreement that covered the increased cost of living as well as the massive efforts they put into their job, uh, Abbott said. The new agreement... um, made them some of the highest paid distribution workers in the country he said i know it's going to make a massive difference to the to them and their families this would not have happened without real effort and and targeted industrial action and it's been inspiring to watch these people come together to fight for each other as well as others who don't even work there yet Countdown Director of Stores and Supply Chain Jason Stockhill said it was pleased to have reached an agreement with First Union. Our store teams have worked incredibly hard over the past few days to minimise any impacts to our customers. And while it will take a few days for us to get further stock into stores, we expect things will be largely back to normal in the lead up to Christmas. Well, good on those workers. Three days they were out and uh, the bosses buckled, as they should. Yeah, good win. Um, Again, direct action, making it happen. That's spot on, spot on. And, uh, yes, so, uh, yeah, congratulations to those workers and uh, standing up and fighting back. Okay, we're going to move on to our scallywag of the week uh, because we've only got a couple of minutes to get through it. So the scallywag of the week is uh, billionaire... Paul Little. So on the uh, who's the uh, the boss of Little Real Estate? So on the fourth of November, um, Secure, which is the Southeast Queensland Union of Renters, delivered a letter of demands to Little Real Estate on behalf of one of their, uh, their members. Little Real Estate rendered Secure members' residents unlivable for months on end, forcing them to live in a hotel. The demands of Secure were simple. For Little Real Estate to compensate their member for the expenses that were forced onto them by having to live from a hotel and a lease renewal in order to avoid retaliation. They provided 14 days to meet the demands before they would take any further action as a union but had a response within 24 hours. A no-grounds notice of eviction for the member. Little Real Estate claims they have the company value of accountability and that they take personal responsibility for their commitments, actions and outcomes. If they believe in accountability, why do they think it's appropriate to not only render one of their tenants' residents unlivable for months on end, but to evict them within 24 hours of their request for compensation? That is the opposite of accountability. It's retaliation. Little Real Estate thinks it's appropriate because they believe there is nothing that tenants can do. Little Real Estate believes they are untouchable and that earns them our scallywag of the week. It's time to show the grubs that they are... It's time to show them that they are grubs and they are... Uh, and to stand up for tenants' rights. Join Secure this Friday for their weekly community picket of Little Real Estate Spring Hill and make it loud and clear that we won't stand for tenants being abused any longer. The Tenants United will never be defeated. 
it's a little union of uh, renters who are starting to organise here in uh, in Mianjin and um, standing up for a, for a worker there who's uh, been treated pretty pretty poorly by little real estate. So uh, yeah, they got our scallywag of the week. Yes. All right. Well, that's that's our show. Um, I've got uh, I've got one track to, to go, but it's quite a short one. But uh, I've left I've left myself just enough time to thank you for coming on the show, Andy. Ah, pleasure. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'd like to have you back on again if you if you can come in a, in a, about a month's time or so. We'll we'll work that out. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, well welcome to the team, and uh, it's great to have you there. It's great to have that insight uh, from an experienced uh, union organizer. Um, so yeah, thank you very much, and uh, yes, uh, thank you to the great CFMEU for being a great union. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh well, that's our show. Um, make sure you stick around. We've got Zedlines who 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 are are in there chomping at the bit to uh, let you know what's happening in in news at the moment. So uh, yeah, so we will um, here on Workers Power. We will uh, see you next Tuesday.